Well, good morning, Four Corners. I want to welcome you one one more time to uh, one of the last remaining services here at the Rave Theater. Um, Yeah, we're very excited about that. Uh, This week and next week, and that's it. Isn't that awesome? So December 2nd, we're having our first service in our new facility. We're calling it a preview service. We want you to come. If your friends want to come, that's awesome. Let them come. But our grand opening is the next week, December 9th. Here's why. We're going to get in our facility next Sunday, Sunday, so two, two away, December 2nd. But we're not going to be fully ready. And we're going to do all we can to make it great and clean and neat and everything works and the coffee's hot and the people are friendly and the toilet's flush. Um, we're going to do, try to do all of that stuff, but we know that not all of it's going to get done. And so we're going to give ourselves one more week while we're in and running sound and lights and heat heat and all that stuff to make sure that when our company comes, we're fully ready. You, you know what this is like, right? If you're having company over the holidays, you, you know how that goes. If, if you like us in our house, it's the only time we clean. If we ever invite you to our house, it's really not because we want you there. It's our house needed clean. Um, that, that's what we're doing. No, but, but we're going to be fully ready. So December 9th is when I want you, if, if you can, to invite all your friends, all your guests. Now, if by chance you have some friends you haven't yet invited to church, here's just a sneaky little thing you can do. You can tell them this week while you're with them, maybe over Thanksgiving, if you're with some family or something, hey, if you've never been to church in a theater, I'd like you to come with me this Sunday. Now, next Sunday would be the last time you can do that, at least at our place. And then December 9th, get them all there. It's really exciting. And I want to tell you about one more important date. The biggest and one of the most enjoyable services of our entire year happens on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23. Every year we do this. This year it's on a Sunday. We're going to be doing it in our new facility. We're having three services, three services because last year we did one and we could barely get in we had a much bigger room last year this year we have a slightly smaller room we believe almost every year we've done this we pop a thousand people we'd love to see that number that'd be the lowest number we've ever had maybe you know 12 1500 i I don't know whatever god wants to do would be awesome but christmas eve eve this is the absolute best time of the year i believe to invite your family and friends to come your the kids will absolutely love it it's going to be spectacular so December 2nd, first service, new facility. December 9th, our grand opening. It's going to look amazing. And then December 23 for Christmas Eve Eve. Now, a couple more final dates things, and I'll jump into a message I'm very excited to give you today. Um, We are not doing work at our new facility this Friday or this Saturday because, honestly, I want to spend some time with my family. And I want all of you to spend time with your family and friends and do what you want to do. So no work. We'll be working tomorrow. We'll be working Wednesday like normal, but not Friday or Saturday. But beginning next Sunday, next Sunday, we're going to be working every single night leading up until December 2nd, our first service in our new facility. We'd love to have your help. I'd love for you to be able to walk your kids by a wall and say, I painted that. Um, I I, I planned on doing that um, in several places in the facility, but everywhere I work, somebody comes along behind me and kind of makes it look better. So I don't really have any places to point at but um but bring your bring your family if you want if you're willing to watch them and and take care of them and work alongside them and and come come help us there's a lot of cleaning and sweeping and dusting and carpet laying and that sort of stuff and we'll do our best to find you a place that's meaningful and enjoyable for you to serve very exciting times if i haven't said it lately let me just tell you one more time thank you thank you there's there's no way one two or ten or twenty people could pull this off 
when you guys have prayed and you've served and you've given and God's about to open a door for us that's going to going to radically change this church. It's a very exciting time and you've been a part of it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're doing future family <laughs> and today's message Today's message has just, well, it's left me a little bloody. I ain't going to lie. In, in, in churches, we talk about when the minister uh, gives a sermon that gets kind of close to home. Sometimes they'll use the phrase, you're stepping on my toes today. And, and so I've been in preparation for this message, stepping on my own toes. It's kind of a, an interesting little feat for like two weeks. Two weeks. I want to tell you a powerful story about how important you are and what an impact you're already making. And then I want us to ask a very simple question, so I'll go ahead and show my cards. God, is there something you'd like me to do so that my impact is greater? God, is there something you'd like me to do so that my impact is greater? All of us in this room today, we're the product of a lot of forces. One of the most powerful forces at work in your life, bringing you to this moment, is the family you were born in. When we talk about family in the United States, we typically say mom, dad, kids, maybe your own brothers and sisters. But most of the rest of the world, when you talk about family, there's a lot more people that get brought under the category of family. They'll talk about grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles and second cousins, uh, the idea of a clan. When you read your Bible, the concept of family included all of that larger, that larger demographic that you and I are a part of. It's not this small, nice, little, neat, nuclear family that uh, sometimes it comes to mind when we talk about it in the United States. Now, the reason why I want you to get that in your mind is, is that not only are you a product of your family, what your parents did and what they valued and how they lived life with you and how your grandparents lived life with your parents, here's something we don't often think about, that you, right now in this room, you and I, we are making the same kind of impact on our families down the line. You've been impacted from upline, and we are making impact downline. Your children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, grandnieces, grandnephews, they're being impacted already, and if not already, the groundwork is being laid for it for them to be impacted by the life you're living. This is a this is a profound thought. Some of us have been wildly successful in our careers. And that, that's amazing. And you're leaving a legacy of sorts in your career. Some of us have been wildly successful at some skill set. And you're an artist or a musician. Or you have some unique skill. And, and when, when you're long gone, people are going to talk about the, the skill or the artistry um, that accompanied your life. But the truth is that the greatest impact you're making that I'm making, is the legacy I'm leaving, those that will come after me, that are a part of my, my family, my family clan. That's why we've taken so many weeks to talk about one of the heartbeats of this church, that the future of your family is not fully written yet. The last chapter hasn't been penned. And changes can be made today that will impact your life, but also impact people way down the line. In your Bible, there's a powerful story about a family, and I bet everybody in the room has heard something about them, but there's a, there's a side of the story that I want to get to near the end of our, 
time together today that I think is explosively powerful. I think it sheds light on what I've just been talking about, that right now, you and I are laying the foundations, we're building a building that will influence the people that come after us. You may have heard of the story of a guy in your Bible by the name of Abraham. I just want to show you a little bit about this guy. Oh, Abe. Now, there's a movie out right now about Abraham Lincoln. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about in your Bible, Abraham. Abraham. Abraham is a major player. In fact, in your Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters in Genesis deal with things that many of you guys just kind of disregard and don't believe, and it's, a, it's the, the, the fodder for a lot of arguments and that sort of thing. It's all about creation and the beginning of the world. Uh, that's good. It's fun to debate, but the meat of Genesis picks up in Genesis chapter 12 with the story of Abraham and his family. Abraham does some amazing things with God, God works powerfully in his life. It's a series of ups and downs. But if by the end of the day, God has begun working in the world in this one man and promised this man that through him and through his family, the entire world would be blessed. Specifically, through his son Isaac. Abraham had a couple sons. Isaac being the one that receives the birthright, the, the special son. And the legacy that began with Abraham continues in your Bible in the book of Genesis through Isaac. And Isaac has a couple of sons. Jacob and his brother Esau. This is an amazing story. Esau was actually born first. They were twins. And the oldest son in the ancient Near Eastern world, they would get the double portion of the inheritance. So between the two of them, Isaac's estate, which was massive, huge, one of the wealthiest that the world had seen at that time, Isaac, his estate gets divided into three parts. Esau would get two, Jacob would get one, except Jacob, from the very time he was born, wanted to be first. In fact, when they were born, the Bible says that Jacob is holding on to the heel of Esau as he passes through the birth canal. That's a pleasant picture right here on Sunday morning, isn't it? But the idea is that he was eager to be first. And the rest of his life plays out this way. One day, Esau, when he's an adolescent and his frontal lobe isn't fully developed, so he's not fully responsible. He, he's somewhat of an idiot. He comes home, he's a hunter, and, and he's been out hunting. And he hasn't been very successful. He comes home and he's starving. And Jacob, who's always looking for an opportunity to get the, the better of his older brother, tricks his older brother out of the birthright, out of the double portion. He makes him a bowl of soup because Esau says, I'm so hungry, make me some of the soup you're good at. Evidently, Jacob was a kitchen boy. We would call him a, a mama's boy. And Esau was out. It, nothing wrong with that, by the way, just the way, the way it went. Um, and, so, and so Jacob seizes the opportunity and says, I'll make you a bowl of soup in exchange for your birthright. And again, Esau not thinking right. like, oh, yeah, sounds good. Because at an adolescent, the now, the immediate is all that really matters. Right? Right now. I need it right now. And so, sure enough, they, they, they strike the deal, the soup is eaten, and the soup is gone, and the birthright is gone in the same moment. And later on in life, Jacob continues his quest to be first. And when, when the dad, Isaac, is about to die, and he's about to lay his hands on Esau and declare him the head of the family, and all the rights and authority and the privilege of being head of the clan is passed on to the firstborn son, Jacob puts fur on his arms, and he lowers his voice, because evidently he had a high-pitched voice. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, 
but he lowers his voice and he goes into his almost blind father in a dark room and disguises himself as Esau. And Isaac puts his hands on Jacob and confers on him the birthright. And the deal that was struck years ago is completed. And the Bible says that Esau's anger burned at Jacob and he sought to kill him. So Jacob leaves the country. He runs away because he was a, a lover, not a fighter. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jacob, <laughs> Jacob runs away and he goes to a faraway land to live with some of the relatives. And man, his life gets nuts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. I think that's twelve dots right there. Twelve sons by four different women. He wants to marry this beautiful younger daughter in a family, strikes a deal with the father, and he wakes up the day after the first night of the honeymoon and realizes, I don't have the younger daughter. I got married to the older daughter by accident. Yeah, not so good. He has children with her. I don't know how many. Let's just kind of draw the line there. And then, and then, the, the younger daughter, he strikes another deal to marry the younger daughter, but the younger daughter that he loved that was so beautiful that he worked so long for, she couldn't have kids. So, so the two women kind of get in a competing contest about babies, and they try to keep getting pregnant. And, and, and then when they can't get pregnant, they start throwing other women at, <laughs> at, at Jacob and saying, look, if you have a, a baby by my, my helper, by my servant, then it's kind of like my baby. And by the time it's all done, four women have borne Jacob 12 kids. And finally, the, the, the beautiful preferred favorite wife. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting conversation to talk about families in the Bible, the favorite wife? Yeah, you're my wife, but you're not my favorite one. I don't think that goes well. But this is a known commodity in the Bible. That's why people say, I want to have a biblical family. I want to go, wait, wait. now, which Bible in the family are you modeling after? Because a lot of them aren't so nice. A lot of us have biblical families. <laughs> it's not necessarily a compliment. So the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the younger sister has two kids, Joseph and Benjamin. And the two kids from the favorite wife are the two favorites of Jacob. And an entire family drama ensues where by the time Joseph is 17 years old, all of the brothers upline hate him. I can't stand him. He's a dreamer. And he has this knack for telling them, <laughs> one day all of you guys are going to bow down in front of me. That doesn't go over well in families. It doesn't. When somebody says, I'm a little bit better, all of you guys are going to bow down in front of me. When he's about 17 years old, he's sent out to go check on his older brothers. They're not where they're supposed to be, but he comes up on them and finds them. And when they see their brother coming, they say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. And they start talking amongst themselves. Great family, biblical family. They, they start talking amongst themselves. And then I guess a, a, a strike of mercy falls upon them. <laughs> and they decide not to kill him. Let's sell him into slavery because then we'll get some money out of him. And they do it. They sell him into slavery for some pieces of silver. There was a caravan passing in their area down to Egypt. And they sell their brother into slavery and they concoct a story to tell the parents he's dead they take the clothes he was wearing dip it in the blood of a goat take it home and see look he was mauled to death and mourning ensues in the house among the parents and the kids make a pact to keep a secret benjamin's not involved he's very very young in the whole thing and he finds himself joseph does this is right in your bible this is amazing stuff the bible takes almost 12 chapters to tell the story of joseph he's a major 
figure in your Bible. It's captivating reading. It'll keep you up at night reading. You can't, I can't lay the, the book down. I've read it dozens of times, and it still captures me. Joseph finds himself in a man's house. His name is Potiphar. He's the captain of the guard. He's a major player in Egypt. But Joseph is a slave. Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house. And evidently, Joseph not only had the favor of his daddy and his mommy, Joseph must have caught the eye of Potiphar's wife because one day she says, hey, you're my servant. I'd like to make you my special servant. But Joseph served the Lord. And Joseph says to her, I can't do this thing against my master Potiphar. And then he says something very interesting. And I can't do this thing against my God. He connected his personal sexual integrity, not just to how it affected other people or him, but how it impacted his relationship with God. There was a deep-seated integrity in this young man. It's interesting. The man who had been sold into slavery, lived in a dysfunctional family, had the worst of the worst happen to him, still had a vibrant and alive faith with God. Joseph acted like a man who followed God. Right here in the middle of having the worst of the worst happen to him, Joseph acted like a man who followed God. Well, she concocts a story that he tried to rape her. She has the clothes that she ripped off of him as evidence. And what are you going to do if you're a slave? Disagree with the boss's wife? With your master's wife? So he's thrown in prison. And his life gets rough. couple of years in prison, he meets a few interesting characters. From Pharaoh's house, a baker and a butler who evidently served some bad food somewhere, and they find themselves in prison. Now, it's bad to be in prison in Egypt, but it's terrible to be a slave and to be in prison in Egypt because you're not waiting for a trial date. You're just waiting. You're just waiting. And in the prison, there's an interesting verse in your Bible in Genesis chapter 39. Look at what it says. The Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor with the prison warden. The Lord was with him. Yeah, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness. These are good things. And showed him and granted him favor. So far, man, this is an amazing story. Until you get to the last line of that sentence with the prison warden. Now, out of all the people that I want God to give me favor with, the prison warden isn't one of them. And in Joseph's time, you don't want favor with the prison warden. You don't want to know the prison warden. You don't want anything to do with the prison warden. But here in this dark place, Joseph finds favor with the prison warden. They strike up a relationship. I guess when the food is being dispersed, he gets thrown an extra crumb of bread. Well, meanwhile... Pharaoh's servants who were thrown in prison, one of them gets killed. The other one returns to the house. And one day, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, is troubled and speaks to his servants and says, I've had a dream, but nobody can interpret my dream. And, and, and the servant of Pharaoh that had been in prison with Joseph says, I know a boy that had the power to interpret dreams. He told me my dream. In fact, he told me when I was in prison and I had this strange dream that kept me up, he told me that one day I'd be restored to my position. And it came true. Maybe this boy could help you. So the prison warden, the prison leader, 
grabs Joseph and says, is there a Hebrew in here by the name of Joseph? And they pull him out and they, they cut his hair and they try to wash the prison smell off of him and they, they dress him up, they put the makeup on him, make him look as much like Egypt as possible and they put him before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh says, I've had a dream, I've heard that perhaps you could tell me. And Joseph says, no, 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 I, I can't help you. But my God, he has the ability to answer dreams and to tell you what they mean. And this was a powerful statement because, first of all, nobody could believe that the prison boy would actually speak up <laughs> in front of the most powerful man in the world. And he may have had the prison washed off of him, but it was obvious he wasn't fully a son of Egypt. And he speaks up, and he was basically saying to Pharaoh, everybody thinks you're a god, but there's another god. When you're insufficient, he's more than enough to take care of things. And the Pharaoh and Joseph have a conversation about the dream, and when he's done talking, the Pharaoh looks at Joseph, and Joseph begins to speak and says, here's the definition of your dream. Here's what it means. The next seven years are going to be wild around here. There's going to be so much bounty and excess but then the seven years after that, it's going to get rough. It's going to get bad. People are going to go hungry. This is what your dream means. And then he says, and here's what you need to do. We need to take 20% of all the take for seven years and build silos and put them in. Put, put the excess in the silos. And we need to store up. There's going to be so much. We need to store it all up so that when the seven years, the lean years come, we can draw from this. And you, oh great king, you'll be able to take care of of all your nation, if you just follow these simple rules. You need to hire a dramatically amazing administrator to take care of all this for you, and you'll sail through this thing. It'll get tough, but you'll make it through. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, well, who are we going to hire? Will you do it? I put you in charge. And he goes from the prison to being number two in all of Egypt. The famine that strikes seven years later gets so bad. It reaches all of Egypt. And Joseph opens the storehouses and begins to disperse food and sells it back to the people. And Pharaoh becomes wildly rich. Wildly rich. More rich than he ever was. The, the famine is so bad it reaches beyond the borders of Egypt. And all the way up in Joseph's homeland, they're hungry and they hear that there's food in Egypt. So 10 of the brothers make the trip down to Egypt. Somehow they get an audience with the number two man. Joseph, their own brother. They have no idea who he is. He looks very Egyptian by this time. And they tell the story of their father and their younger brother who's left in the homeland who couldn't make the journey. And they beg for food. And Joseph loads them up with food and concocts a scheme to get his brother down to visit him. And when they're there together, when they're there together, Joseph reveals to the, his brothers, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. Now this is the point at which the part of me that's not always godly says, and this is when the hammer comes. This is vengeance time. This is sweet moments of revenge. They did him wrong, and here it comes. I want you to look at what your Bible says in Genesis chapter 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. And then the Bible tells this amazing story where it ends with Joseph saying, I'm your brother, 
And then they weep together. And rather than exacting revenge, he hugs them. He embraces them. He brings them back. They're reconciled. Let me ask you a question. How did Joseph, how how did he respond that way? What, What happened in his life? What kind of faith did he have that allowed him not to hold a grudge? I can't imagine me not holding a grudge. I'm still a little ticked at the guy that cut me off yesterday. I can't imagine him not holding a grudge. Where did he learn this? Did he just have dramatic faith? Obviously he did. Obviously this guy trusted God. And there had been moments in his life of peril and, and concern and challenge. And Joseph rose to the occasion regularly. But this is like, this is like super faith. There's another part of the story that doesn't get told very often. That I think will reveal to you the truth, the one simple thing I want you to understand today. And to tell that part of the story, we have to go way back in Joseph's life. Back not to this, these events, but right back here. Right back here. Jacob and Esau. If you were at chapter 42 in your Bible, you're going to be turning back now to chapter 31. Back 60 years. Back when there was some real difficulties. Real difficulties in the family. (laughs) Jacob and Esau had been estranged. Jacob had been living among his distant relatives in a faraway land while Esau stayed around the family clan. But while Jacob was away, God blessed him. And the double portion began to happen in his life. (laughs) And his family grew. His livestock grew. And by all the indicators of wealth, he was wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. And he decides one day, after getting word, that he's going to meet his brother Esau. And he is shaking in his boots because he is afraid. The Bible describes this encounter, and it's powerful and poignant. And the impact it's going to have is going to speak not just in Jacob and Esau's life. The impact of this event is going to speak all the way down into Joseph's life. And it's going to set the stage. It's going to set the tone for how this whole dynamic that we've been talking about is going to unfold. The actions that are about to take place here, a generation preceding, are going to have wild, wild, wild implications for the generations down line. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 30, or or verse 3, it says, The Lord said to Jacob, the guys we're talking about, Joseph's father, Go back to the land of your fathers, that's Abraham and Isaac, where your brother is, and to your relatives. And then he says, and I'll be with you. This is a good thing. I'll be with you. You've got the birthright. I'm not done with you. I'm still writing a story in your family. The future isn't complete. The last sentence hasn't been written. I'll be with you and we'll get through this. And then in Genesis chapter 31, it says, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. 400 men. 400. Not women and children, men. A small army. So here's what Jacob did, because he was scared. Look, look at this. This is the pinnacle of bravery. So he divided his children among Leah 
the, the, the not favorite wife, and Rachel, the, the favorite wife, and then the two female servants that he had kids by, and he put the female servants and their children in front. You want to know the pecking order? You're in front. If we go to war, they get you first. He put them in front, and then Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph took up the rear with, with, with Jacob. Here, you guys go first, and then ugly wife, you're second, pretty wife, you're here with me. And I figure if the 400 men want to fight, they got to get through all of you. This guy had some challenges, right? I'm going to show you inside of all of his difficulties, there's only, you, you only have to get a few core issues right, and life can go wildly well for you. All the details don't have to be aligned, but some pieces do. And you're going to see right now a piece of the story that is so right that it impacts not just Jacob's life, but Joseph's life and all the grandkids and the great, and it's still impacting us today. So in the back was Rachel and Joseph in the rear, in verse 3. And then he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he walked. Kept bowing seven times. Bow seven times. Bow before his brother. Then the Bible says, but Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept together. I don't know what Jacob thought was going to happen, but he didn't imagine it playing like this. And then Esau looked up, and he saw the women and the children, and he said, who, who, is, who are all these people? And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given to your servant." And then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel. Little boy Joseph. Not number two in Egypt. Little boy Joseph had a front row seat to watch what reconciliation looks like. To watch forgiveness in action. To see he had heard the stories of the, of the deceit, of the disconnect in the family of the tragedy of why that they never saw their granddad and now he's watching has a front row seat to see a powerful story of reconciliation and mutual submission to one another and a humbling of his father and a humbling of the man who had every right to be angry and exact vengeance but instead of all of that they hugged, they embraced, they cried together. They valued each other more than they valued the past. They valued each other more than they valued the trouble that was between them. The future that they wanted together spoke more loudly in the moment than the past they had shared. And Joseph watched all of this unfold. And I want to tell you that that it set in his heart. It put in place in him a foundation to view the world, to understand how to manage conflict. You do understand, don't you, that how your family handles conflict has a huge implication on how your children will handle conflict. How your family faces crisis will have a huge implica implication on how your children will handle crisis. They wet, 
They met each other and they wept together. Here's the truth. What your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews see you do in times of crisis will lay the groundwork for how they will act in times of crisis. Where did Joseph get the strength to look at his brothers and say, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. Come here. I'm so glad to see you. He got it by watching his father and uncle reconcile. Your children and your grandchildren may forget what you say, but they will not forget what you do. And they're watching, even when you don't think they are. And they're learning. And the tone of their life for how to handle conflict and opportunity and crisis is being written, and you and I are writing that part of the story. The tracks are being laid for how they will engage this world. You and I, we're wildly important. Our impact is huge and deep, and the impact that we will have, most of us will never get to see it because it will be fully manifested after we're long gone. Joseph had a front row seat to see reconciliation and healing take place in his family. A drama that he wasn't a part of, but he got to see it. He got to feel it. The smells, he smelled them. The sights, he saw them. The emotions, he felt them. And when he was in the pressure cooker, in the seat of authority, he was able to follow the example of his uncle. And he embraced his brothers. And a beautiful story of reconciliation. A starving family is nourished physically and emotionally and spiritually. And it begins the story that eventually one of the great, 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 great grandkids is Jesus. This is his story. God used what happened in Esau and Jacob's life to impact Joseph, to put him in that place so that he would have the ability to know how to handle that kind of hurt and disappointment. Decisions will be made by generations after you and after me with the imprint of our actions that are happening right now, impacting them. What they see us doing, once again, you and I are wildly important. But our importance will be lost on us, but it will not be lost on our nieces and our nephews and our kids and the people whose lives we're a part of. You have incredible impact. You are incredibly important. And what you do will continue to speak even after you and I are gone. That's why. That's why we partner with families. Single people who are part of families and married people who are part of families and children who are part of families because it's in the family that these kinds of things are learned. How do I handle conflict? How do I view the world? Is faith a part of my journey? How do we make decisions about money? How do we handle conflict? How do we speak to each other when we've been wrong? How do we reconcile? It's being learned whether you're teaching the lessons or not, you're a teacher. Whether it's intentional or whether it's just happening, your kids are learning it and so are mine. And it really begs a question, doesn't it? God, is there anything you'd like me to do to change my impact? Is there anything 
you'd like me to do to change my impact, to impact my impact, to make a difference, to, to grab hold of your agenda for my family and for my kids so that they don't just see my actions and simply replicate what they see, but so that they see the actions that I take as I humble myself before you, as I let you impact my life. This is our prayer. When our staff gets together on Tuesday, this is how we pray for you. God, so work in our family, in this church, in moms and dads and aunts and uncles and kids and nieces and nephews. So work in the families of this church. Be so a part, be so an intentional part of their lives, that not just in this generation, but in the generations to come, the impact of this church partnering with families can be felt to the 10th generation. You are wildly important. Your impact, your impact will not be fully felt by you. Joseph had a front row seat to experience what happened between his dad and uncle. And when the time came for him, he had a well to go to that was rich and full and sweet. It begs the question, God, is there any changes I need to make to impact my kids in the way that gives them a full, rich, sweet well? We think about what happened to us, but we rarely think about how what we're doing is impacting down. You are wildly important. What we do is wildly important. As we call each other to let God be so a part of our lives that in our crisis, in our decision making, in those pregnant moments, the impact and the importance of which we don't even fully fathom in the moment, God is such a part of all of that that our kids absorb. They learn what's important to us. And what's important to us is the right stuff. You can miss a lot of the details. But if you get God right, it covers a lot. We're doing a lot of construction in our buildings. We're not all that great at all of it. So we have a slogan. Caulk covers a multitude of sins. That's our slogan. <laughs> now, I don't want to be too funny here, but God covers sins, but he covers our inadequacies. Having God right covers a lot. You don't have to have it all figured out. You get him in his right place in your life. You drip with him. It oozes into all the moments of your life. You don't even have to fully understand the impact, but you're helping your kids. It's leaning them in the right direction. You're helping your nieces and your nephews and anybody that you have influence over. God, are there any changes you want me to make because my impact is great? Why don't you grab out your Connect cards and let's take a few steps together. See, I think rather than taking our time, we should run towards God's plan for our life. I bet there are issues in your life right now, because it's true in mine, that I already know what I'm supposed to be doing and where I'm supposed to be leaning. And I have been limping. I've been playing towards it. I feel the call in my own life to run towards the prize and to quit limping and taking my time. 
Some of us in the room, honestly, we need to begin a relationship with Jesus. And let him and his grace wash over us and make him the leader, the Lord of our life. That's next step A. If you'd like to take that, we'd like to help you understand that, encourage you in the way. God, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I need you to cover my sin and be the leader and the Lord of my life. If you'd like to do that, you can check the box for the card in the offering bucket when it comes by. We'll pray with you and send you some information about that. I believe if you fully understood what a relationship with Jesus looks like in your own life, it would change everything for you. We want to help you with that. The next step B, I want to go public. I want to display for anybody that I have influence over that Jesus is the most important thing in my life and everything else comes second. Baptism says that. It says, I want the world to know that I'm his, he's mine, and we are bound together. His values impact mine. His word speaks into my life. His resurrection power brings life to the parts of me that have been dead and forgotten. Next step C. I wonder if anybody would say, I've been kind of limping towards God's plan, but today I'm making a commitment to pick up the pace. I, I don't know exactly what that needs to look like, but I get the sense that some of us are like limping and circling around it. But what if you just sprinted towards making Jesus the full leader of your life? What if you take what you already know as opposed to some grand unknown and you just ran towards it? You are wildly important. And it's wildly important that Jesus be at the center of everything. Next step, D. I wonder if anybody would agree with me. That's true for me. There are decisions I have already made, but I haven't actually made the changes in my behavior. <laughs> I made the decision. I haven't followed through. So today I repent and I turn toward the thing I already know to do. And the next step, E. What we do as a church is wildly important. And so we need you to pray, friends. I'll pray for Four Corners for the generational impact it is having on our area. Many of us will be gone before we see the full impact of what we do today and over the next year is having. So that's why we got to let God lead and guide and control every piece of this. Let's pray about these things right now. Lord Jesus, <laughs> thank you for the story of Joseph. But thank you also, Lord, that you didn't hide from us the ugly parts of the families in the Bible. And in their examples, we can learn. We can see you. We can be drawn to what's really important. So Father, I pray now. I pray for me and Jill. I pray for other parents and aunts and uncles. I pray for nieces and nephews and sons and daughters. That God, if they see anything in us, they would see you. And if they believe we have any values, they would believe deep down that we value you. And the things that are important to you become important to us. And it's not just what we say, it's what we do so that they can see it. God, I want to thank you for a church that partners with families. Single, married, divorced. Thank you. God, we commit to you that as you open this door on this new facility for us, we will leverage everything you give us to help people put you at the center of their lives. We pray it in your strong name. Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand up as we